It has been cynically suggested that when all is said and done, every successful politician essentially is a good actor. Well, when it comes to Oregon's former congressman, Les O'Coyne, we know that he certainly produced one, his son, actor Kelly O'Coyne. For the full hour, I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. This little piggy got a house made of bricks. Hand over hand over hand over fist. This little piggy got a house made of bricks. Pup and pup, bitch. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell. You're a pretentious, preening ass. And that was Dollar Bill, a mercurial character. You're a parasite. You're not an earner. You're a page pusher. Played by the actor Kelly O'Coyne. You got no balls. He is extremely adroit at playing an aggressive person with a demeaning tongue. You're less than a man. And that's not sexist because you're less than any woman. Stop. That was ugly. We don't live there or we become ugly. Dramatically speaking, O'Coin lives everywhere. Ugly, kind, fearful, brave. In fact, some have described him as the ultimate shapeshifter. Kelly O'Coin is known to most for his role as Dollar Bill Stern in Showtime series Billions. And prior to that, he's known to many for playing Pastor Tim on FX's The Americans. He has been praised by Clive Barnes for his dramatic artistry and has worked opposite myriad talent, including Robert De Niro and Denzel Washington. But Kelly would argue vigorously that his greatest talent was displayed by successfully wooing and winning his delightful wife, Carolyn Hall, the recipient of a New York Bessie Award for Modern Dance. You've also probably seen his work in turn, The Washington Spies. You may have also seen him on the American version of House of Cards and other programs such as, well, Madam Secretary, Person of Interest, The Sopranos, and going a little bit further back, Law and Order. It is my delight to welcome to Watching America the one and only Mr. Kelly O'Coyne. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let me ask you, um, having grown up in two locations, Washington, D.C., your daddy, I should point out, was was a congressman, Democratic congressman for Oregon, uh, and uh, your home state, uh, what what kind of lifestyle did you lead? Uh, how many months of the year, for instance, were you in Washington? Uh, but, well, when we moved, we actually were there um, I, uh, nine to ten months out of the year. We always went back. My dad was back and forth quite a bit. I think he was in Oregon 10 days out of every month. And um, as the election was coming closer, uh, he was there more often. But we would be, uh, we spent all of our time uh, in going to school uh, in D.C. in the mid-70s through the late 80s, and then um, back in Oregon during the summers. 
Well, if you were there during the mid-70s, you were there around the time of, of Jimmy Carter, of course. Did you get to mm-hmm. ride an Air yeah. Force One or any nice little perk like that? <laughs> no, that would have been lovely. We did. Uh, you know, everyone in, in the uh, House of Representatives is invited to uh, the, the Christmas ball at the White House. So early on, we did attend those. And even as a child, I remember thinking this was a pretty spectacular building. We would always wait in line to shake hands with the president and the first lady. And I particularly liked Jimmy Carter because he was as short as I was, essentially. Or he wasn't much taller than I was when I was a kid. But it was, you know, that's that's a that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. My parents stopped going um, during the Reagan administration uh, because not only was he in the Democratic Party, as Howard Dean said, he was from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. But later on, they finally realized, how often are we going to be able to do something like this? Let's let's take advantage. Showing up to the ball doesn't mean we're supporting his policies. So. I only went in the early years, but it was pretty spectacular. We had a Volkswagen bus that putted like a outboard motor, like a like a little um, uh, motorboat, and uh, I, it was I always remember fun them. to show up. Yeah, yeah, it was always fun to show up at the White House and uh, in that when everyone else was coming up in pretty spectacular cars. Well, there's certain uh, uh, theatricality to politics, and uh, you mm-hmm. saw that exhibited with your dad. But actually, early on, you uh, were quite enchanted with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival that you would attend. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? First time I went, I was, uh, I think I was in late grade school. I was the first live Shakespeare I'd ever seen. And if anyone's been there, it's an outdoor, the main stage is an outdoor Elizabethan facade. And until the 90s, when they built a, a sort of amphitheater around it, still up into the sky, but now there's an amphitheater. Uh, until then, uh, it was about 3,000 seats, 2,000 seats, just going straight back. And around a little a wall that was maybe 15 feet high, you could see the mountains and the stars and the sky. And, you know, summer nights and, and seeing fireflies and, and watching a world-class production of as you like it it's um it i fell in love i i it was it was my first i think it was the first time i understood that it's okay to miss you know um a quarter of what they're actually saying because you pick up what's happening you're 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 moved along by the story the language even if you don't get every single word is still gorgeous and and it's you know, summer and you're a kid. And uh, I, I, my dad remembers, I don't remember this. Uh, maybe he was bullying me, but um, he remembers me telling him after that moment, dad, I want to be here. And I want to, even if I have to carry a spear like that guy, I want to be here. And, you know, be careful what you wish for, because the first production I ever had when I actually did make it to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival was a spear carrier. So, you know, <laughs> wish more, <laughs> wish more elaborately, young man. Have you sure. ever been to the Globe in, in London? Have you had uh, the pleasure of uh, that? I, I've never seen a production, uh, but my wife and I spent Christmas in um, in London and Wales this last year, and uh, we took a tour. And it was... I, I, I tend to be skeptical uh, when people talk about mystical places or religious places. I'm not a particularly religious person. person. I am a spiritual person. But um, I... I didn't want to leave. It was it was a semi-religious experience just being in there. Uh, I am dying to go back and uh, so that I can see a production. I really do. and I want to be with the groundlings. I want to stand on the on the floor. Uh, maybe see it. Maybe see two shows so that um, so that I can have both experiences. But it's um, it's a pretty it's a pretty spectacular place.
it's a pretty it's a pretty special place. It is yet to air on Watching America, but I, I've done a show there already with the uh, with the head of the Globe Theatre, and as you know, it was actually mm. established by an American, Sam Wanamaker, by an American. Uh, who yeah. was responsible for for bringing that to fruition. So you you yeah. recognize that there were people on stage uh, brandishing swords and uh, having a, a, a magical effect on an audience. Was that the earliest point that you said, hey, I might want to do that? As a child, what were your favorite TV shows? I was um, I was enamored of, of Mr. Mr. Fred Rogers. Um, we watched uh, the children's shows. You know, we watched uh, Sesame Street and um, The Electric Company. Uh, but I'd say... The first shows I, I started watching with my parents were MASH. Um, there was something called the, uh, what, I can't remember what day of the week it was, but it was, let's say, Friday night um, mystery movie. And it was uh, an, a rotating version of Barnaby Jones, uh, McLeod, Columbo, uh, McMillan and Wife. And there were these hour and a half long murder mysteries with these characters that you revisited once a month. Yeah, they're, they're actually. Um, I think they were ninety well, minutes. It was the the NBC. Ninety Mystery, minutes. Yep. Yeah, ninety minutes. NBC Mystery Theater, and there was a, a another show which didn't last as long called Tenor Fly that was put in there. But you're right, McLeod, oh. Dennis Weaver, all those different uh, persons mm-hmm. and, and what yeah. have you. And did, did you were you able to see beyond the literal glass back in those days on our on our screens? Were you able to see beyond that and say, "Hey, that's a nice thing to do. I could be an actor." No, or, it never nope, occurred nope. to you. That n- never occurred to me. It was always stage. It was always theater. When I when I when I would see myself and project myself up somewhere, it was always live. It was always in a room where you're breathing the same air, and it never um, it never fully occurred to me that that was something I could do or that I wanted to do until I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, and I'd been doing plays all my life. I was uh, I was King Herod in the uh, the acclaimed Forest Grove, Oregon second grade production of pageant play Christmas pageant <laughs> play. Uh, I was old King Cole in the trial of Mother Goose in fifth grade, I think. You know, I, I were I did all this stuff. And, and I think growing up with a politician as a father, you get used to being in front of people. You get used to a certain performative aspect of life. Yes. Uh, my mom was an incredible singer. Uh, she didn't do it professionally, but she sang quite a bit. And my grandfather played the mandolin at a restaurant that he opened in the, uh, the bar every weekend. So people were on stage, um, my dad constantly in a different way, of course. Um, so I think I was comfortable with it without thinking that it was something I was going to do professionally you know, before I ever thought of anything, of doing anything professionally. But at a certain point, I saw that and it was, that was magic. That, that The Oregon Shakespeare Festival, it was magic. Was your father disappointed that you didn't pursue politics or, or some other vein of, of pursuit? Or relieved, maybe. Ah. Um, he, I, I think, my sister was always the one who would, pro- who was probably most likely to pursue politics. She actually went to the moderate. She got into the Monterey Institute for International Studies, um, and a couple months before she was to go, she backed out to pursue clinical social work. Um, she had a change of heart. Uh, I, he, I've grown up in an activist family. Everyone's involved. Everybody uh, is outspoken. Um, if anyone follows me on Twitter or knows my dad's history, it's not going to be a surprise that we're on the the left end of the spectrum. Um, but he never he never tried to push us into anything. I think that 
he, I don't know that he's ever said this. I don't believe he's ever said this to me, but I think that there probably was, I was joking, but I think there was probably some relief that we weren't going to enter into that field because it, it was increasingly brutal uh, as he, as the years went on for him. And he's been out since 1992 and it's only got worse with the advent of the internet and Facebook and God, Twitter, which I love for my own purposes, but it's certainly not an area of, uh, it's not a realm of, um, of, uh, of discourse that, <laughs> that tends to be particularly magnanimous. <laughs> yes. So I, I think he might be relieved. You decided of all places to go, uh, and, and I don't say this askance or, you know, with any dismay, um, you decided to go to uh, Oberlin College in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, what made yeah. that de- decision? What, what prompted you to choose there? Well, uh, everything I knew about Oberlin was that it was, a, uh, it was a great school. It was a rigorous academic school, and I needed that. I, um, I had been floating a little bit working, but also have, I had focus, I would say, focus issues. Um, I wanted to challenge myself. But it also had a reputation of being a very um, progressive, uh, open-minded, I don't know what the other words I would use, uh, but uh, free-thinking school. And that appealed to me at the time and still does. Uh, I'm very proud of 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 being an Oberlin alum. Were you a drama Uh, major? I was close with a lot of the people. I was not. I was a history major. A history major. It was a place... yeah, it was a place where you could take you could you could do any of the plays you got into, and you could take any of the classes that you were accepted into without being a major. Uh, so I was able to pursue other interests, and I was fascinated by by history. I still am. Um, and the the I subsequently I think I subsequently decided and learned that the most interesting actors to me are people who have myriad interests. Uh, there, there of course are are, are great actors who studied theater and nothing else all their lives. Sure. But more often than not, I find the people who, um, who are the ones I, I continually, continually want to work with and want to watch are people who have studied all kinds of things. And, um, they're rigorous in their craft and they know their craft. It's not that they just come to acting, but that they have myriad other interests. And that, um, that's sort of what I wanted. That's how I wanted to live my life. I had too many interests just to be stuck in a theater constantly. Uh, well, that's so like Paul Overland Newman. provided me the opportunity. Uh, Paul yeah. Newman was like that. He said that, you know, he had no particular interest in hanging out with other actors who only wanted to talk about acting. Uh, you know, please bring <laughs> something else to the table. And he mm-hmm. gravitated to persons like that. And there's been a number of actors with the same sentiment as, as you're expressing, you know, let's... Can we be a bit more expansive? Yeah, there was a, pro- a professional production I did early on, and I remember being one of the things because I didn't go to grad school. Um, I don't have a lot of the shorthand, especially. I mean, I probably picked it up along the way, and, and maybe now I'm confident enough that I don't give a crap. But early on, it was sometimes difficult to communicate questions I had during rehearsal, or uh, or to answer a director. Uh, in a succinct way, because there was a vernacular and a shorthand that people had who went through drama school or went through grad school. Um, and that 
didn't really after at a certain point it didn't really bother me anymore and one of the big breakthroughs for me was uh, doing a play called Arcadia which is one oh. of my favorite plays by Tom Stoppard right uh, and there was a guy in the production who's older than me fantastic actor and I found out halfway through that he had also not gone to grad school and that his that he had spent I think six years as a minor league baseball player and I just was like yeah Cool. Here, <laughs> this is exactly what I mean. Yeah. This is an interesting human being who has had interesting. Um, he was had an interesting life. He acts. He's rigorous about his craft. He, he's learned his craft. He just didn't go to grad school, and yet here he is, the most one of the most interesting actors I've ever seen. And his name was uh, was uh, John Letter Thompson, actually. But he's fan- he was fantastic. And so that was a, a moment where I sort of. I, it was one of those moments where you know an older actor who you appreciate and respect. Uh, he becomes that that uh, justification for you. We shouldn't need it, but we do need that kind of thing every once in a while. You worked recently with uh, Sigourney Weaver. In fact, uh, at least to this date, yeah. as far as I'm, you're waiting for something to come out with uh, Sigourney Weaver. But I remember her saying in an interview one time, I think it was with Dick Cavett, and she said, you know, I went to Yale Drama School. And uh, she said, really? She said, I spent a significant amount of time there. And about the only thing I really learned was movement as a craft on stage. <clears throat> And she yeah. said, all the rest of it, I, I, I could have taught myself. And I think that's true of a lot of disciplines of self-discovery. And certainly we know that many comics uh, can come from mm-hmm. doing stand-up and put some actors to shame with their adroitness and ability to mm-hmm. display an innate talent and understanding of the craft of, of acting. You mentioned Tom Stoppard. Um, I know you're a great fan of his work. Is it the rhythm to his dialogue? Is it the content? Is the flow of the narrative on stage? What is it that attracts you to the work of Tom Stoppard? Oh, God. It's everything. Um, there's a there's a sexy intellectualism. There's a um, there's just a and a warm intellectualism. Uh, when, when people people tell me sometimes that they think he's cold and intellectual, and I just want to scream because they're not looking close enough. Um, it, it's uh, the, the romance. He is such a romantic, but he's also, but he's not an easy romantic. And but two of my favorite plays are the real thing and Arcadia. And so I'm sort of, I, I, what I'm and you've been when in I both. talk about stop. Yeah. Yeah. And when I talk about stop art, uh, it, it's, it's, I'm sure weighted to, towards my experience with those two plays. Um, but yes, it's the rhythm. Yes, it's these people who are who are so smart yet so flawed, and are constantly, um, constantly striving to discover more about themselves and about the world. And these parallels he draws, you know, in Arcadia, landscape architecture, and 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 quantum mechanics, and um, and mathematical structures, and it's just, it's just delicious. There's a deliciousness to it. Somebody told me once, actually, I think it was my wife who said that she thought he was our modern Shakespeare. Mm. And whether or not we think that's true, there's, um, he certainly, the, the complexity and the, um, and the range of topics and the, the range of intellectual imagination, uh, the level of intellectual ma- imagination, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to compete with what he brings to the table. I'd love to meet him. I've never met him. And, oh, you have? Uh, yeah. I would fall down... Um, I'd try to shake his hand and probably fall down in a heap before I actually got to it. But I really, I just adore him. 
So you do the Mike Myers, I'm not worthy? <laughs> <laughs> I probably would. I probably would. <laughs> yeah. Um, many actors who love the stage, such as yourself, and this is certainly true of, of, of a lot of British actors, although Britain's theatre seems to be quite well endowed financially at times, um, unlike American theatres. So a lot of people do television and film so that they can have the liberty and the licence, if you will, to be on stage and to make a living. Uh, not to be dismissive of the screen, either large or small, and you've certainly done both. Um, is there a little bit of that in you? Like, okay, well, you know, it was nice doing, uh, you know, the, the, the Americans, but now this will afford me to take a season off and do an eight-week run or a 15-week run. Do you do you look at it yeah. like that way a little bit? You know, I don't. Uh, I think that I probably suspected that I would, but I've uh, the, the the difference to me, okay. I used to think that um, I was just inherently better at theater than I was at TV. And it was because of the rehearsal process. You know, you, mm -hmm. you, you have a people who haven't done theater think it's harder. It's exponentially harder because you're on stage for two hours and there's no net and you can't stop it. What if you screw up? Um, but, and that is hard, but, it's also hard to try to, to uh, in the moment, come up with, without any rehearsal, uh, a proper emotional response to, to, to something in a scene that you're filming. And yes, you get five, ten takes. TV, you, if, you, if you're getting ten takes on everything, then you're way behind and you're not going yes. to be back for the next season. So it, it's, uh, they both have their, uh, their difficulties. What I, I think I learned... It started to happen with the Americans, and it definitely has happened with, with billions. What takes the place of the rehearsal process, of the, of the three-week to five-week rehearsal process, is backstory, is the years of the seasons of the episodes that you've shot before. So when I, when I do a scene with Dollar Bill, like episode two of season five, there were some interesting emotional wrinkles, new emotional wrinkles for Bill that I felt I, I, I didn't feel like I needed two weeks of rehearsal in order to figure out because I know the guy now. We've been doing it for four and a half seasons. And you can draw on that knowledge. Uh, and then all you have to do is play with your scene partner and with the director and come up with uh you know, the level of heat or the level of pathos or the level of, of you know, specifically what you're going to do, but you know where he is at emotionally. You know the, the range of, um, of options emotionally that he's going to meet this situation with. And once that started to happen, I started to love TV more. And so now, um, you know, theater is always going to be my favorite. There's nothing like doing a show every night. And, um, and I love everything. Look, I love tech. Everyone hates tech. I love the week where you are in the theater for 12 hours every day. You can't go outside. You're probably in a theater where you can't get Wi-Fi or, or cell reception. So it's just you and the other sweaty, smelly actors and tech people. And you're just putting your, you know, you're, you're rehearsing a play and you're only at a certain point. You're not quite there yet. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have to stop. You can't rehearse anymore because all the tech elements have to be brought in. Mm. I love that. I love the panic. I love that that incredibly vulnerable position you're in. Um, because then after tech's over, usually you have maybe two dress rehearsals and then you, ha you have an audience. You have preview audiences. It's a terrifying and wonderful 
time in a theater process, in a theater, in a playmaking process. And TV doesn't have anything like that. But it's you have you have the downtime on set where you're communing with people and yay, it's, they're, they're just different. So I would say my long-winded answer is that my short answer is not exactly. They're both. I love them both. And it's not TV is not just a means to an end anymore. It is um, it is a love now. Uh, and I'm, I've been lucky. The Americans and Billions have great dialogue. They have great actors that I'm working with, great crews. Um, so I am lucky. I haven't had to do a show that I um, am not proud of. That might change things. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Kelly O'Coyne. He is known mostly by, well, certainly recent audiences for his work on the show Billions, which appears in its now its fifth season on Showtime. Uh, you know him as Dollar Bill Stern. Prior to that, he played Pastor Tim on FX Americans and uh, a multitude of other series, Madam Secretary, House of Cards, the American version, etc. And we're talking about um, the difference between working in television versus the stage. I had this question for you um, in relation to working with directors. We had um, Terry O'Quinn. Uh, from Lost uh, on the show here live in the studio. And one of the things we discussed, and I I dedicated that show entirely to acting and technique, the the rather unsettling experience of having a visiting director come in. Now, uh, for the general audience who may not all be aware, typically you have the pilot, you have season one, and you have, if you will, a template set by uh, an early director. And the idea is to follow that within reason. Then you can have a new director who comes in for a one episode, a one-off, wants to put their stamp on the show, change things, and possibly change characters. Have you had, Kelly, the experience of somebody wanting to turn your characterization in a direction that you know is invalid to the inherent backstory of 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 the role you're playing? Only once. Um, Never on Billions. the, I think the, but they have what you call tone meetings, and um, the, the incoming directors, whether or not they've directed before, we have a, we, we sometimes have uh, uh, repeat director, repeat guest directors. But with the Americans, there was one scene where I, I mean, I don't. I'm, I'm she, she's a wonderful director, but there was something that we disagreed on uh and and it was a pivotal moment for the character and i didn't argue forcefully enough for what i believed and knew was true for the character where he would be in that moment or at least to give her what she wanted and then argue to get takes enough takes uh in the vein that i thought was correct and to this day, I watched that scene, and uh, it was an important scene, and I, I, I cringed because it felt like it felt like nothing. Um, I watched my performance, and I say, I was trying to do what she wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't right, and so I was, uh, as much as I was trying, I couldn't shake a certain doubt. Yes. And so, to me, the scene became nothing. Uh, there was no commitment. And I wasn't doing that to undermine. I just, you know, 30%, maybe 50% of my brain was saying, no, 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 uh, to myself. <laughs> as I was doing it. And that's not, you know, that doesn't lead to great acting. Um, so the two, my, and the two things I hate about that are 
Number one, that I didn't, as I said, I didn't argue forcefully enough or um, or coherently enough, perhaps. Um, uh, and ar- by argue, I don't mean fight. I mean persuade. Um, and then also that if then I'm not going to do that, then damn it, find a way to completely commit to the thing that you don't necessarily believe. Because ultimately, that's all that the audience is left with. And I did not do either. And um, it's a scene that, you know, I look, I, I see, I watch everything I do because I, I make my own reel. It's cheap. I'm cheap, just like Dollar Bill, who's the cheapest billionaire in the country, supposedly, my character. Yes. Uh, I, I'm cheap, and it saves me a lot of money if I do my own reel. So I capture my footage and I, and I, I look at different scenes and try to figure out what's going to be the best. And that scene was just, you know, it was right there. It was perfect. It was a scene that would have been great, except that I didn't rise to the occasion. So uh, the answer is yes, and it's unfortunate. Uh, I am very fortunate that it rarely happens. And I actually think uh, there, what's, been ha- what's happened on Billions a few times is discussion about character. And I have successfully um, uh, ta- I-, I have successfully argued for certain things. Um, and I think also I am successfully able to let go uh, when I don't win the argument. Um, so I'm better. I'm a better professional now than I was when I shot that scene four years ago or ish years ago. It's so refreshing to hear an actor say, I look at my work because I'm so to the point of ad nauseum tired of actors saying, I never look at my work. No, no, it's gone. Yeah. I never look at it. <laughs> And I don't believe them. I don't believe them for one minute. I mean, you know, there's the average man on the street, uh, Joe or Sally or, or whomever. If there's someone who says, oh, there's this photo of you. I go, oh, yeah, let me have a look. I mean, it's just, it's just natural to do that. So thank you for your, your candor and uh, honesty in that regard. Uh, one, one quick thing, one parenthetical. Um, so sure. my wife uh, always makes fun of me. <laughs> I don't know what this says about me. But she'll say, hey, I have a I've been growing a beard during this whole lockdown thing. Yes. And I finally she was like, you really need to trim that that. And I'm not going to say it because you just have to believe me, but you need to trim that. And um, and I finally did. And I came came to the room and she said, uh, oh, your beard looks good. And I immediately walked to the to the mirror and said, oh, yeah. (laughs) And she's like, you always do that. Every time I say you look good or, or this looks good or that, you always find your way to a mirror and check yourself out. And it's like, just let me tell you. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so I guess I, I'm a narcissist. Yeah, well, no, you're not really. You're just typical male. I mean, I've yeah. raised three sons, and I want to tell you, we always hear about the girls who preen themselves in the mirrors endlessly. Believe me, guys sure. do it. Boys <laughs> do it. You know, they're constantly coiffing their hair and doing this and the other thing. Um, one yeah. of the things I'd also like to ask you about, because I'm just intrigued about the process, it's a very different experience, and you've gone through this, uh, making your way up, to be a guest star on a show. Uh, very yeah. often, if you have, let's say, less than magnanimous and generous stars, sometimes they won't even stand for the reversal for you. So the stars yeah. got their lines done, and then there's a stand-in or a dot or a point they put up, and you're supposed to play to that the opposite way. Some people are very generous. Other people are not. Um, how did you handle the early days when you have that initial excitement? Oh, goody, I'm on this particular show, which we won't point any out in, in necessarily, but you're on this particular show, you go, and many actors and actresses have the disheartening experience of realizing at best they're a little add-on 
and they come away feeling sometimes wounded and deflated. Have you ever had that experience? Um, I, I was lucky. I didn't have a, a bad star experience uh, as a guest star on a show until I was a little bit more confident. I, I would have the experience where, unlike on stage, this is part of my feeling like, why am I just inherently better at acting in on stage than I am here? Um, and it was just, you know, the, the, the jumping without a net and feeling like all actors have a certain, a certain level of, of not fear, it's knowledge that we are going to be discovered this time as a fraud. Uh, and what happens, I think, as you get older and you do more, is that 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 quiets to a to a large degree. It's always going to be there, I think, to a certain extent. So I think for me, early on, it was just I couldn't breathe, and uh, and I would say lines, and I did was like I didn't recognize my voice, and uh, it just felt like an other mm. uh, an other version of me, an alternate version of me doing those scenes. Um, the bad. Apples, um, the bad apples can be hard. And there was one person I worked with on two different shows, five years apart, and they did exactly the same thing each time. Where there was a, a big scene, uh, I, I, camera was on them. I did my part, and then all of a sudden there was a a, a phone call, and they had to leave, mm. and. I would see them arguing with the two different producers on two different shows and they would just leave and the entourage would leave with them. Mm. And, um, the, I, both times I got apologies from the producer. Uh, it, it, you know, and it's, it's not cool. Uh, I will say that Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti, Maggie Siff, none of them have ever left without doing their reverses. And none of them have done their reverses uh, anything less than a good performance that you can play off of. Even if they've been on, and they work much harder than I do on this show. Uh, you know, same thing with um, with Carrie Russell and, and uh, Matthew Reese on The Americans. And they worked every episode, almost every single scene. And in one, one episode, one season, Carrie was pregnant. And she, and, you know, it's a spy show. They're constantly doing overnight shoots. They, were, they always stayed around for their reverses and they always gave me performances and they always reacted to stuff I was doing so that I could then react to stuff they were doing. I mean, you know, it, it, it mm. sounds mundane. It sounds doesn't sound like much, but it makes the product so much better because yes. these smaller characters are getting they're, they're, they're able to make the most of their small moments, And those moments make the show great. It takes a good show and turns it into a great show when you when there's no when it's a seamless um, when the cast is seamless. Yes. And to me, the, I mean, the Americans. It was my favorite show on TV when I auditioned, so I was I was sure I was going to screw it up. Uh, but it, I, lucky enough to get on, and you know, that's to me that's a pantheon show. It's one of the greatest shows ever on TV, and um, and it's largely because what those two brought every day, and they were leaders. And they were also great ensemble members. And that's I, I say this about Damien all the time. I don't get to work with Paul Giamatti all that much, so but I'm sure it's true for him, too. He's such a sweetheart. But Damien is a great leader. He sets the tone every time he's on set. But he's also a great ensemble member. And that's not an easy balance. And it's certainly not the normal balance for a star. 
Um, but I think that's part of the reason why a show like Billions is so delicious because you've got all these empowered actors to make the most. They're empowered to make the most of their smaller roles, and that makes the world interesting to the to the group to yes. the uh, to the audience. Yeah. So. If you're just joining us, we're listening, or you're listening, I'm speaking and I'm listening too, to Watching America with Kelly O'Coyne. You know him best as Dollar Bill as he returns for the fifth season on Showtime's Billions. Formerly, you knew him as uh, Pastor Tim on The Americans. And you've also seen him on various shows like Turn, Washington Spy, House of Cards, The American Version, Madam Secretary, etc., etc., and including The Sopranos, which has just been referenced recently. Um... I wound up, in a sense, behind the camera. I teach filmmaking at a university oh. and screenwriting as well as was, uh, have taught production courses. But I wanted originally to be an actor. And when I went through that phase uh, of entertaining the idea of being an actor, I became quite self-absorbed, um, I thought, <laughs> under the, the guise of you know professionalism. And I don't want people to hate me, but I remember going to my mother's funeral and um, uh, I was grieving. I was sincerely grieving. But there was this moment when I became aware that I was becoming analytical of my grieving in case I would ever need to use that grieving professionally. And I felt <clears throat> guilt. I felt very peculiar. I was, it was like, uh, not literally, obviously, but psychologically an out-of-body experience, self-reflexively looking at myself. How am I responding to my mother's death and a funeral? And I, I resented that, and, and, but it, be, it became a part of me. I've spoken to other actors who go through that regularly. Now, I think, Kelly, you know what I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. How often do you experience that? I mean, for instance, mm -hmm. I know actors who have the birth of their child, and they're not firsthand enjoying the birth of their child. They're thinking, how am I responding to the birth of my child? I may use this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what do you have to say regarding that? Uh, um. I remember early on noting that I was upset and I would, I remember, uh, look, I, I cry at the drop of a hat. I'm, I'm, I am one of those people who Me cries too. at commercials. I cry at songs, I, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was an interesting thing. I, I don't, I don't believe I can't, I can't, uh, make myself cry. Yes. Like I, I can't have a scene that I'm shooting where, they say, okay, now this take, we need tears and just make them happen. I can't do that. Um, so it, it's always, I've always found it sort of an odd dichotomy, uh, a conundrum. Why, if I'm, if tears are so accessible to me in real life, why can't I access them when I got need them? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, I guess that's parenthetical, but um, I think, well, I guess, okay. To continue on that, I think, the more I've stopped trying to make them happen and realize, well, they're asking for tears and they'll get them if they come. Otherwise I'm just going to be really sad and I can access that. Yes. I can make myself sad because yeah. I will put myself in the moment and the character will be sad. I'm not going to strive to be sad. I'm going to experience the moment as best I can. And then maybe tears will happen and maybe I'll just choke up. And so I guess that's one thing. Um, in terms, when I was younger, and the issue of not being able to conjure tears was more forefront in my brain, that was probably the time when I was noticing that phenomenon you're describing most. And I remember thinking, this is why I can't do it, because I can't actually fully just experience something anymore. Right. I am, I am, I'm too analytical about it. Mm. 
now, I'm never one to judge. There are there are people. I I actually don't think that that phenomenon means that you're a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> but that or, hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> or, <laughs> okay, well, good. with all due don't respect, that hadn't that. occurred to me. <laughs> don't even consider the fact that you were a sociopath. Oh, don't thank put you. that out of your mind. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think it's that. Uh, and and to be more serious, I don't think that that's necessarily that that says anything negative about somebody's character. Um, it is just part of being human. Um, inquisitive minds pick up on the strangest things, mm. and it is strange that water is falling out of my face. It is strange that I can't stop myself from heaving now. That is strange. It is surreal that my mother. I will never see my mother again. This is all. Strange, and it, to think that that we have to behave in a certain way um, is is um, is conventional wisdom. But I think it's it's uh, it, it's it's inhumane. Human beings don't react in ways that they are supposed to. Yes. Uh, there's no you know it, it, there, there's no prescribed way to grieve. There's no prescribed way to experience love, to experience anger to experience pain or embarrassment or humiliation. And so I, I am curious about if people are experiencing something honest and they, are, and they notice it and there's a part of their brain that say, wow, this feels weird. Um, I, I think when I stop thinking of it as, as a uh, sort of not predatory, but as a, uh, as a, a superficial exercise. self-absorbed exercise, exercise, exactly. When I stopped thinking of it that way, it started to become more normal, and then I stopped noticing it. And I think I stopped doing it as much, where it just became, or, or it just folded into the actual emotion itself. This is what it is. This is what it is to be human. I'm constantly amazed and shocked and surprised by how I respond to everything, and that that's just part of being human. In the time that we have left, I would like to talk about your beloved Carolyn Hall. Uh, your wife. You fell in love. Yeah. Uh, I am a romantic, and uh, mm. uh, I just I'm extremely curious, as I'm sure the audience is. Was it love at first sight? When was the moment, if I may be so bold, and you may say, "Back off, Alan Campbell," and, and I will. <laughs> when was the moment that you knew you were in love with Carolyn Hall? Well, Carolyn Hall remembers. So I went back. We both went to Oberlin College. I was two years older. Um, I went back, I graduated credit short. And um, if I got to walk with my class, I was two credits short. I got to walk with my class and I got a diploma that said on the inside, please return at the end of the ceremony. <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> yes. Um, but I went back for a semester. And uh, as you might think, someone who couldn't, it might not surprise you that someone who couldn't finish on time forgot to arrange housing. But I did have that Volkswagen <laughs> bus, and I was yeah. I was sleeping in the back of my bus and um, on people's couches. And I met this this uh, this woman with some friends at a soccer game. Uh, she was not only a dance student and a biology major, um, uh, she was also a trainer for the men's soccer team. So we were watching a soccer game and chatting with her and a bunch of other people, and she was interesting. And I remember leaving the bleachers. That day, I was getting in my bus, um, and I had my camera, and I called out to my buddy who was sitting there, and I, and took a picture as he turned around because I thought it was funny to get his face looking weird. 
and surprised. But I noticed next to him, sitting on the corner, was Carolyn in cutoffs and a tank top and a ponytail and watching the game. And I remember literally, and I said this at my wedding, I thought the word, huh. And it really was a pang of, it wasn't a pang of love. It wasn't love at first sight, but it was, huh, at nearly first sight. And that night or a couple of nights later, we were at a, uh, I went to a party and she was sitting on the railing and she said, howdy. And she gave me her cup. And if, if, for those of us who remember college, that meant I didn't have to give them a dollar and I could bring my cup up to the keg. So she saved me a dollar and we talked for two hours about all kinds of stuff. And at that point, I was smitten and I started crashing on um, their couch as well as some others. Um, but it was, um, it was, it didn't take that long. Now, she remembers the year before me being at the dining hall. And talking to her and some friends, and that I seemed less than interested. But my argument is only, yeah, you know, I was a senior, and I, it was we were nearly leaving, and I probably didn't notice anything other. That's probably my most narcissistic time of my life. Well, when um, you said, I mean, I will have you know tens of thousands of women upset with me if I don't pursue the ha here. Okay, so uh-huh. was the oh now we got an aha? <laughs> but the it was it was it the, was closer to an aha. It wasn't ha. It was. Huh, H-U-H. Okay, so it's ha. Did ha mean interesting, amazing, tantalizing, needs to be investigated? Is that what ha meant? I think all three except maybe needs to be investigated because I didn't know if I was going to see her again. I I don't think I Ah. was – I didn't plan anything at that point. The ha moment did not – did not lead to a plan. It just – I think it was – it was definitely interesting. It was definitely tantalizing. And it was definitely you said something else that was that was perfect, but it was not. It didn't make me find out where she. um, It didn't make me find out where she lived or what her classes were. But I do remember when I was at that party talking with her. After about forty-five minutes of talking to her, I went and I said hi to another friend and said, "What is her name? The woman I'm talking to?" Because I didn't even remember that. And they told me it's Carolyn, you idiot. And so it was, it was, I, I'm, I'm very lucky because I did have a tendency to sort of float. Um, I, I, when I had a role, I worked very, very hard. Um, and I, that, that was thrilling to me. So it, it, it's not, not about my craft, but about other things in life. I did tend to float a little bit for a long time. Mm. I didn't know how to market myself and mm. I didn't know how to market myself to ladies. And uh, so it, I, I am lucky in a sense that, um, that I didn't do something off-putting to, to to Carolyn. Kelly, I am so impressed with you, not only because of your uh, obvious talent and skill as an actor, but um, because of your personhood. One of the things that is very apparent and clear is your desire to incorporate and share the successes of those you love, including not only your wife, Carolyn, but also the reference to your sister and your website and to, to family, to your mum, uh, to the the talents and exploits of uh, persons who have been very successful in both large and perhaps less glamorous ways. You shine a light on them. And that shows a lot of, well, speaking of being magnanimous, but uh, courtesy, grace, kindness, love, uh, which you exude through that 
which you have written on your website and publicity material and what have you, you, you are not content to be the center of attention. You want it to overflow to everyone. Before we leave, is the one thing that you think is an essential part of Kelly O'Coin that most people don't appreciate that you're willing to share with us? Hmm. It's a good question. I, um, I think I'm a pretty open book, uh, but we always think that, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, wow. I, you know, this is very odd. I've been asked so many questions. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. So uh, is there something that's quintessentially or essentially me that, that people might not know? That's the question. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, certainly people who only know me from billions might be surprised to know too, that I'm a, I'm a humanist and a progressive politically. And, um, they might also find it surprising that I'm such a softy that I actually like to laugh and I like to hang out with people and I prefer having only one wife. Um, I did have someone come up to me one time and say, I'm sorry to bother you. I just, I love the show. And I wanted to say, I think your character's great, although I love to hate him. Uh, but I didn't recognize you for about half an hour because you, you were smiling so much and laughing. Yes, <laughs> um, which which made which was kind of kind of wonderful, you know. I I love nothing more than to be around people and to be a member of an ensemble, both, and I mean that in professional terms and artistic terms, and I mean that in life. I, I, I like being part of a of a group of people that will support each other, have each other's back, celebrate each other's successes, and. Um, and celebrate yours as well when they happen to you. And I, that, that means the world to me. Well, you live it out. And I want to thank you, Kelly O'Coin, for being a part of Watching America. You are a voice of kindness, directness, candor, honesty. Um, but you're also encouraging, uplifting. And, um, and true, we've used this word a few times in this interview, but it, it applies, magnanimous. And um, you make me feel good about your profession. No. And we look forward to the fifth season of Billions, where you play, of course, Dollar Bill. Thank you so very, very much. Let me just ask one quick question. Sure. Okay. You don't have to abide by this, but um, sure. if Carolyn, is Carolyn there with you? Uh, she's in the other room. Would Can we just like say hi to her and hear her voice for like 30 seconds? I know yeah. the audience would love yeah. it. Is that all right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, hold on one second. Okay, thank you. Let me... Hello. Okay, go ahead. All right. Hi. Hi, Carolyn. So nice to talk to you. We've been talking, obviously, with your, your brilliant husband. And one of the things that was clearly noted is his supreme and great and devoted love for you. So I asked him, could we just for 30 seconds hear Carolyn's voice? And uh, we noted at the start of the show, you winning an Bessie Award for Modern Dancing in New York. And so I'll yes. shut up. But I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> hi. Um, yes. <laughs> Was it was it love at first sight when you met him? Ooh, no. <laughs> this is, this is well, fact it's it's not that um, I didn't find him intriguing, but a very good friend of mine had a crush on him. Ooh. So I was what? <laughs> I was holding space because I was like, well, you know, she had a crush on him, so I was kind of like. Yeah, I'll suss him out and see what he's like. And then it turns out 
we liked each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. And um, it's just, I was just saying, looking at the website, I mean, he is, is very, very uh, ardent in the best sense of the word about letting people know how proud he is and how much he loves you. And this show would not have been complete, I don't think, truly, without having heard your voice. Carolyn Hall, thank you so very much for joining us. One day I'd like to do a show with you, maybe. Thank you. And, and yes, here's the romantics. Here, <laughs> here. Oh, here, here. Kelly, thank you so very much for delighting us and charming us and being sincere. And I, I want to tell you, knowing more about you, there's additional depth now to um, watching you as Dollar Bill in every other role. And I will be, I've already enjoyed your work and I'm, I'm a fan, but I am going to avidly follow everything you do, as I'm sure numbers of our audience would do the same. Thank you, sir. And um, thank you. You, you said that thank you, was... you well. Thank you. And if you come to New York when I'm there, I try to do a play every year. Although this year it's off, obviously. But if uh, if you're ever in New York when I'm doing a show, let me know, and it would be fun to have you at the show and have a drink after. Oh, I'd love it so much, Kelly O'Coin. Thank you. And you told me you're spiritual but not religious. So in that vein, let me just say, God bless. Thanks so much, and uh, you're a delight. Thank you. As are you. Thank you so much. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. You showed me how to do exactly what you do, how I fell in love with you. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Oh, it's true. Oh, Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. And Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.